In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the paths of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Hey, good evening and welcome. So a number of people are away at uh, Profound Treasury or um, otherwise not joining us tonight, but we have our good core of us. So let's dive into this familiar, hopefully highly familiar topic to all of us, meditation. Have, have any of you tried meditating ever? <laughs> I did like years ago, I did like a, a one day thing at some group. I don't know. It was, it was weird, but anyway, uh, I circulated the objects of observation last uh, week and it was a rather odd version. And we were talking about it before sitting and I circulated a couple of other versions. So I'll just show them briefly on screen. So we just re refresh our, our memory of the scheme of the objects of meditation from the Mahayana tradition stemming from the Samdhinirmochana Sutra. So here's, here's uh, do you remember Pete? Pete Bragg? One of his handy works, Objects of Meditation, Cheat Sheets. He liked to call these things Cheat Sheets. <laughs> so, actually, let's start with this guy's simple version. In this book, Study and Practice of Meditation, from the Sutra Unraveling the Thoughts, Omdhina Mochana, Asangas, Shravaka Bhumi, and Stages of Meditation, Four Types of Objects pervasive objects, objects of observation for purifying behavior and objects of observation for developing skill and for purifying afflictive emotions. In the first, there's non-analytical images, analytical images, and then the limits of phenomena. And the limits of phenomena are like the, the uh, um, sometimes it's a term that's used to denote the extremes of uh, uh, eternalism and nihilism, and often it's used to indicate uh, the varieties of phenomena versus the way that they exist, their mode of being. The varieties is their conventional nature and the mode of being is their emptiness. And then the thorough achievement of the purpose are objects that take us to the end of the path. And there's a, meant to be um, a, a progression here. Non-analytical analytical images are what are used for shamatha. Analytical images are used for vipassana. And Vipassana then proceeds into understanding these two, which are the two types of uh, omniscience or wisdom of a Buddha. And then that progresses into 
uh, the experience of uh, the, the attainment of the various paths and bhumis. And these are not exclusive. These categories are not mutually exclusive. They're overlapping. They have different sort of purposes. So then for purifying behavior, um, there's for, for people who are desirous like myself and probably most of us living in the realm of desire, the focus traditionally is on the unpleasant, like the, the decomposition of a dead body or a corpse. Love for those with uh, in whom hatred predominates, which is very common these days. Hatred is bad and uh, is, is worse than desire in our world and because uh, it leads to violence. Um, desire probably leads to violence too, but somehow hatred is, uh, is clearly more directly leads to violence. But And then dependent arising for persons in whom ignorance, so it's the three poisons, attachment, aggression, ignorance, or stupidity. And then uh, for those of pride, so we have the five kleshas, you uh, contemplate the equanimity of all phenomena by uh, focusing on the constituents, which are the datus. And then the exhalation, inhalation of the breath is for persons in whom discursiveness predominates. I don't know if you know anybody like that, but it's very rare. And then for developing skill, we have the three skills first, uh, skandhas, datus and ayatanas, and then uh, dependent arising in 12 parts and adanas, and then what is uh, appropriate and inappropriate, what should be accepted and what should be rejected, and then for purifying of the afflictions, and uh, those having the aspect of grossness or peacefulness, so those are the kleshas, and then those having the aspects of the truth, so the the knowledge obscurations or afflictions, I guess. It's a little bit, I'm a little bit vague on this classification in this way. And then here's uh, Peter's version, discursive images. He has the order slightly different. Can I, uh, can I ask yeah. a question? The one that you were just showing us before did you send that one because i couldn't find that in what you just sent i did i sent uh, three emails i think right because i'm not I, I i think i got two of one thing but i don't remember seeing that one i'm i could be wrong about that though yeah there's one i realized i sent the same thing twice and then i sent one more email hmm. after that. oh i see there may be one that i didn't see yet thanks thank I you got it i think that's probably it Ah, <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's see if he added anything interesting. Or we, he and I work together on this. <laughs> And then there's this version by uh, Tsongkhapa. Anyway, so 
as uh, one of the points that our reading makes, um, we all know, I think, quite well that the more you flit around from subject to different objects, uh, from different objects, or the more that you use different objects in your meditation, the less less success you have with your meditation. And the more that you stick to one object, the more success that you have with your meditation. So calm abiding, how to cultivate the single-pointed mind of calm abiding. Um, I'm just going to mute you for now, Cynthia, just because of the background sound. <laughs> you're so you're probably so used to it living in New York that you don't even know. My apologies. That. No, I meant to mute. I forgot. Sorry. No problem. And Eric, they're living in like a war zone. <laughs> um, one thing that Burzen brings up is the reification of even images or things that we aren't conceptually thinking about are still reified appearing objects, which Cynthia brought up before and which keeps getting hammered home in this text, but always kind of annoys me because I like to think of when I'm meditating on breath or something that I'm looking in the floor in front of me, that somehow that that's specifically occurring and I'm like really in tune with everything. And they're like, no, you're reifying it. Yeah and, that, yeah. and I noticed in the other version that you brought up, it doesn't really hammer up that point as much. Like the one that we use, which isn't from the Gokpa tradition, the one where it does, oh, that's a non-analytical image. I'm like, oh, um, non-analytical. That's easier on me. I see. Didn't didn't the one by Tsongkhapa? The one by Tsongkhapa have the, the same gloss. The version one just goes on to say, when we say non-analytical object or image, you're still reifying it as an appearing object. Yeah, he, he says it right up front, very clearly. They, they, they just like it. Just it's like what Cynthia said. It just sticks in my craw because I don't. I guess I don't like to be reminded of that. That I'm not just following the stream of the breath, but. Yeah, Tsongkhapa says that too in, in his version. So uh, th there's a helpful uh, response to that that I'm going to ask Mary Beth to help me with. I think you know what I'm talking about, no? Have you forgotten how to unmute? Trungpa uh, Rinpoche also talks about this, but in a, he talks about it in a different way. He uses a cool term for it when he goes through the four foundations of mindfulness. Oh, the, <laughs> the livelihood line. Is that is that what you mean? No, it's in the body. There's a certain type of body that he says we focus oh, on. Oh, the psychosomatic body. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm back in my very psychosomatic body right now. <laughs> <laughs> After a day of working with the psychosomatic body of, <laughs> of toddler, toddler, toddlers or infants or. Toddlers, right. Toddlers. We, we're, we're never really connected to our body. We're connected to the idea of our body. Yeah, so Rimshe calls it the psychosomatic body when he goes through the four foundations of mindfulness. So yeah. he doesn't really drag it out as he doesn't really say it as clearly and sort of painfully, but uh, he does he does echo the same sentiment. 
way. That that's a form of reifying? Yeah, we're, we're focused on our conceptual idea of our body okay. and our breath, and that's our meditation object. Whereas, in, particularly in Shambhala world, there's a huge amount of focus on sense perception as being like a doorway to some progress or Vipassana, you know, because of the Shambhala teachings and the way that they focus on that, particularly in level, what is it? perky or drala or something you know they they do those exercises with the senses and but um basically we're we're living in our little reified world <laughs> we're stuck in our little reification world Let's thank see. you for that derek that puts it in perspective and it always okay. it makes me realize how simple enumerations like this it makes me feel like that doorway is closed they're like oh no the door's closed you're just reifying yeah slam dunk and, and in shambhala you're always slam told shut. the door is at any moment always possibly open with the yeah next breath. that's that's a great response that that is the key that uh that is the key that shambhala uses as a skillful means that even though you do live in that enclosed world of the cocoon and so forth the light gets through and you have the opportunity to go beyond at any moment. Neil, greetings. So here's our dive into meditation. And uh, let's see, we have uh, let's see. So I'm going to skip around, but I'll go through the very beginning and then I'll skip the pre uh, most of the prerequisites as explained above so i'm on page it's a uh, chapter 24 and that's in part six of the book and it's page two three rather 93 wow 393 we've read a lot of pages haven't we <laughs> we've gone through a lot of material so this is like, uh, you know, we thought that this, I thought this year would be more like open and inviting to people and we'd get more people introductory, you know, but it quickly became apparent that the Shadra's curriculum's version of introductory is like way different than normal introductory in the current world of Buddhism. And uh, so the Shadra introductory is quite advanced. But um, the other thing is that in the Shadra, when you go through this material, a lot of it is just like familiarizing yourself with the terms and the schemes and the ideas. And to some extent, or, or to a larger extent, maybe in the, in the traditional monastic versions, it's memorizing this terminology and the schemes or maybe a root text. Usually they did memorize a root text. And then later on, the meaning dawns over time. And so I, I uh, urge you to consider that as well, that, uh, you know, we've been through a lot of material, particularly this semester, all that logic stuff. You know, it's sort of like a, a little bit of a uh, ocean or, or a little bit of a morass of material. But uh, I think over time, you will appreciate knowing that as a framework for understanding how 
how we know and how we come to conviction and how we understand emptiness both in our meditation and out of sight of our meditation. Bless you, uh, Cynthia. I hope you're okay. So, uh, section 24, how to cultivate the single point of mind of calm abiding is explained above. Buddhist texts distinguish among many categories of gross and subtle states of mind. They speak of how one can go beyond the gross state of mind and the desire realm and attain higher states of mind, such as the states of mind encompassing the meditative absorption or dhyana of the form and formless realms. Interesting way to start off right away is uh, linking this to the dis description or the presentation earlier of different uh, levels of mind based on subtlety that correlate to the three realms of existence, desire, form, and formless realms. And that through meditation, uh, particularly in the more traditional context of achieving absorption states, one can progress to this to the other of those uh, two realms from our desire realm. Achieving these higher states mainly arises through attaining the single-pointed mind focused on one's chosen meditation object in dependence on a method that combines mindfulness and meta-awareness, which if you remember is their translation for the Sanskrit samprajanya and the Tibetan sheshan, otherwise translated as clear, uh, ranging from clear comprehension to introspection to vigilance, to um, alertness, to awareness. Ultimately, this depends on achieving calm abiding, where the mind remains single-pointedly focused, i.e. shamatha. Hence, we now present a brief, the explanation, a brief explanation of the topics of shamatha. In general, the purpose of cultivating shamatha is to gather one's scattered mind inward and make the mind serviceable so that one can focus on what one wishes on any virtuous object. Another theme that, that is related to what Eric mentioned earlier of uh, our, in our tradition, not having a huge emphasis on the fact that we're, we're meditating on a conceptual version of our breath is that um, we have an emphasis on going outward in our meditation practice. And in this presentation, the emphasis is on going inward. And uh, I think the reconciliation of those is that um, going outward in our tradition is uh, connected to experiencing the object called space, which is generally considered to be outward. But since again, it's a reified version of the real thing, if there is such a real thing as, as real space, that it actually is a, a, an inward moment, uh, inward movement, our meditation. Uh, but that that's an interesting topic. You'll we'll see this a lot here of like going inward versus we're encouraged to constantly expand outward and open. Uh, let's see. Afflictions such as attachment and arise and lead to all sorts, sorts of suffering because one's mind is scattered. When scattered, the mind's clear and knowing capacity, the two fundamental aspects of the mind, dissipates towards various objects, thus creating the condition that prevents that prevent it from being channeled to a focused in a focused manner. 
When calm abiding is attained, the mind's capacities become concentrated and highly efficient with respect to whatever higher quality we might seek to cultivate. It is stated, therefore, that it is important to cultivate a stable calm abiding at the outset. When the mind's capacities can be channeled single-pointedly, then the mind focusing on its chosen object, whatever that object might be, will be very powerful. In general, the mere gathering of the mind inward also occurs during a state of deep sleep. Uh, but in such cases, other than the simple fact of the mind not being distracted outwardly, there is neither clarity nor uh, vibrancy. In contrast, the gathering of the mind inward that occurs as a result of calm abiding meditation possesses stability and that the mind remains firmly focused on its meditation object and clarity and that there is the clear appearance or reflection of the object, its object. Such a mind is also characterized by vibrancy in that it is lucid and alert. So they're separating clear and lucid here in their terminology bringing us to three char uh, characteristics of meditation, focused, clear, and vibrant. And their vibrancy is its lucid quality, and clear is its knowing um, or opaque quality, and uh, focus is its stable quality. And those correlate to, ultimately, to uh, the the experiences of advanced meditation practice of bliss, luminosity, and non-thought. Um, let's see. Therefore, although deep, both deep sleep and concentration are similar in that they both gather the mind inward, inward they differ enormously in their meaning. And uh, so the mindfulness uh, specifically focuses on being focused, <laughs> and uh, meta-awareness specifically focuses on clarity, and then the vibrancy that arises is like the uh, conscientiousness or the ardency or the heedfulness, I guess. So I was about to ask, what is vibrancy in terms of the translation? Is that the pakya or the... Yeah, I don't, I don't think they would say that that's pakya. That would be an odd translation of Pakya. Let's see, we do have a short glossary, if I remember. Uh, let's see if they give us a vibrancy. UV, no, they don't. They don't give us a translation. Lucid and alert. Well, they go back and they, uh, in, in vibrancy, the alert, you know, is the clarity and the lucid is... Um, perhaps the only one that's different. Maybe they give us a term for lucidity. Probably not. No. Okay. In the in the index, it says uh, mm. it has a Tibetan word, G S A L. Oh, for vibrancy. Yeah, and it's just something also clarity, and then it has. What did it say, Sal? G S A L B A in the index, right? That's where you find numbers yeah. next to the. Yeah. So that that's yeah. Salwa, right? Yeah, yeah. Salwa. So we would say that that's the clarity. That's the 
the luminous, luminous nature. Yeah. And so they're using the term clarity in the sense of knowing. Oh, so that's the second one, not the third one you're talking about. So that's not the vibrancy and lucidity. Right, the vibrancy is Salwa. Oh, I'm sorry, you're saying the vibrancy is Salwa. That's what they give it as in the okay. indexes, as Mary Beth helpfully okay. pointed out. Thank no, you thanks. for that. I haven't figured out how to find the index. Okay. I guess we need oh, to line up all of these. Digital books. Yeah, we need to, we should, I should have done oh. that beforehand, right? I should have had a little terminology cheat sheet for we'll, us. We'll refrain from the shoulds, okay? Yeah. <laughs> we could do it now. Yeah. Enduring the, uh, ensuring rather, <laughs> the prerequisites of calm abiding. Um, this is the traditionalists. And let's see. Among many, although many preparations giving rise to Kama abiding are mentioned in the text, Kama Shila's Bhavana Krama explains the principal ones as follows. Uh, staying in the suitable area, having few desires, being content, giving up many activities, maintaining pure ethical conduct, and abandoning thoughts of desire, and so on, and so on, rather. And uh, then they authors go through that in some detail in two two levels of detail uh let's see oh no in some detail and then they go through the posture so on 395 on the right when one has gathered a prerequisite such as a place with the five characteristics and so forth one should sit on a comfortable seat in the bodily posture of virochana which has seven or eight features the eighth was interesting. So a seat slightly elevated at the back. <laughs> uh, it's good to keep the legs in either full lotus or half. The purpose is to help produce pliancy. So the posture of the seated posture helps produce pliancy because the body must be well disciplined in the yogic practice of sitting cross-legged. <laughs> it's sort of a circular logic, but um also the position enables one to sit for a long time without tiring the body if you're able to <laughs> and uh, the back of the right hand is placed on the palm of the left uh, we usually place our hands do most people place their hands on their legs on their hips yeah Rinpoche does present this in the profound treasury as an alternate though in the lab and uh, the two elbows are placed comfortably and directed slightly away from the side of the body so that the empty space will allow the air to move back and forth. But they don't mention the thumb part here. They, they just do the um, simple. Well, yeah. later on, they mention the thumb part. Uh -huh. And uh, Rimshay mentions this analogy of having an egg under your arm, I think, <laughs> under your armpit without cracking it. The eyes should be neither wide open nor completely shut and should be left as if directed toward the tip of one's nose. Do you all meditate like this? Or do you stare at the wall at the other side of the room? Be honest. <laughs> I think most of us were taught to stare at the wall on the other side of the room, right? We start with four to six feet and then, then like we go to programs and raise your gaze, right? So you're looking at the wall. And you project your energy at the wall. No? 
it's it's very difficult to not look at the objects that appear in front of us. It is, it is. But uh, so so basically, over and over again, meditation texts that I've seen, and I've looked for this over and over again. The gaze is that you're supposed to look at the space right in front of you. And they describe it in this way of like looking past the nose. But some of them describe it like uh, a foot in front of your nose. Some of them give specifics or up to three feet. But it's like the space right in front of you, not the space across the room. You know, your, your, the angle of your gaze is different than the focal point of the gaze, right? You know, so initially we start with the, ang the angle of the gaze low and then we're taught or, uh, or we're, uh, int it's intimated that as you're more advanced, you raise the angle. But either way, you're supposed to not be looking at the floor or the wall, but at the space in front of you. Which, I, I think as Cynthia said, it's really difficult to do. It's, but. it's difficult. I mean, I am actively working on it and, find, and just find it amusing how too. hard it is. Uh, but I think the the closest we come, perhaps, in our instruction is talking about a relaxed gaze, because that's where you're sort of aiming to move away from the notion that you're staring at something or rest, you know, you're not, like, if when you try to talk about, like, more peripheral, you know, or, or more relaxed gaze, relaxed gaze. I don't know, you know, I'm not sure I, I, I agree with it, because, okay. um, and, and that is a point that's stress. It's just to relax the gaze and not to to fixate on any point. So I'm, I'm there that that's that's part of it. But um, I think when we say that, what happens? The reality is that people find that a long focal point is the most relaxed. And I think, and for those of you here that this discussion is new to, try it in your meditation and see if you can feel like this, this way that you're projecting your energy like over there. You're projecting your energy at that wall over there. And you can like let go of it and come. And you can put your hand in front of you or you can put an object in front of you if you have a table. Put like a stick in front of you or a flower, you know, and see what is it like to just look right here. I remember one time I was at a sit at a local um, Zen centers. They they wall stare. Like that, right that's here, exactly right? what I was to say. I, I the first time I ever was sitting, I think it was three feet from a wall, and my recollection is the wall was painted some shade of green or something, and so it was like, it, it was like, oh my gosh, how do I do that? You know, it's it was difficult because it's just so in your face but yeah nine years facing the wall they talk about that's that's what they're yeah yeah i i was stuck uh in, i went to profound treasury during the pandemic and i wanted to sit outside and there's this little porch area and it was very crowded i ended up with this seat right in front of the wall and at first i'm like oh this is gonna be weird you know but then it was like oh this is great <laughs> i'm just like because the the color of the wall is so hard to actually focus on that your your my eyes just relax but they relax like right here and it, it for me i find and i've tried to cultivate this ongoingly basically since then is that it, it brings a much more present sense to meditation when you like actually try to be 
looking in the space in front of you. I, I think it's one of the, I find it to be one of the most uh, powerful aspects of the practice of the posture of the scheme, whatever. So I urge you to try it. It's said that, uh, that if the eyes are just looking at the edge of the nose, Um, there again, though, there's there again. You there's actually looking at something. So yeah, they're like looking right here, <laughs> which which for us is like cross-eyed, and that's like not easy. It more easily eliminates laxity and excitation. Also, it is taught that if the eyes are wide open, the mind becomes under the sway of the eye consciousness, thus increasing the risk of distraction. I mean, uh, I'm sure. I'm not alone in having spent years like investigating, you know, looking at the pattern on the brocade of the Tonka across the room in my, in our little shrine room here. <laughs> I know it very well. Though <laughs> um, this one is interesting in that um, you're talking about if the eyes are wide open, meaning like super wide, as opposed to where they're somewhat lowered. You know, the number one question that we all get when we give instruction is the whole question of why you have the eyes open at all. Yeah, so then they address that next. Is if the eyes are completely shut, then an appearance of, I've never heard this one before, an appearance of redness arises that obstructs the clarity of the meditation object. It also increases the risk of sleep and mental dullness. I've heard those over and over again, but the redness is neat. Actually, I guess the question about that is besides the redness, it's the what it, it's saying it's obstructing the clarity of the meditation object. So in this case, what is the object that it's obstructing? The breath. The breath. Uh, so the uh, redness obstructs the breath. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's a funny way to put it, but my understanding is that it distracts you to looking to experiencing the redness instead of the breath. But they okay, might. That makes sense. They, Maybe it's That's more specific. It, though, yeah. it is, yeah. Um, and then the other thing that um, we don't tell beginners is that there's a quality of working with the inner winds of the body and keeping the eyes open keeps the, the energies, um, works with the subtle energies of the subtle body in a way that gradually over time uh, is what you want to have happen in meditation practice. Now that we've gone through all the subtle body stuff in these volumes, we might as well be explicit about that. The body should be straight without leaning back too far nor bending forward too much. It's said that holding an upright balance between leaning back and forward helps prevent the occurrence of sleep and confusion. Also, when the body is straight, the channels are straight. And based on that, the winds flowing and the channels flow straight, which makes the mind more serviceable. Shoulders should be straight and evenly placed. The head should be neither raised nor lowered, but kept facing forward without turning to the side. Teeth and lips should remain naturally in their usual position. That's not that helpful. What is their usual position? <laughs> uh, the tongue should be uh, raised slightly to touch the top of the teeth. When the tip of the tongue is drawn up behind the teeth, it helps to prevent the mind from becoming dry and in deep meditative equipose, it helps prevent the problem that I know is a big problem for 
many of us here drooling. <laughs> There's this presentation that uh, Zongsar gives about uh, Shamatha at the end of his Nundro manual. He talks about Shamatha and he, he emphasized that you're supposed to not move and not close your eyes or blink for the entire hour, for the entire session, and that your mouth is supposed to be slightly open. And that even if drool, even if you're drooling or like snot is coming, running out of your nose, you're not supposed to move and blow, blow or wipe it up. But that actually you keep a, a cloth in your lap because uh, of anticipating that eventuality. Okay. Little known aspects of meditation reveal. <laughs> Imagine that at introductory meditation workshops, you hand out little drool cloths, lap cloths. <laughs> you might need this. As for counting the breaths, one settles into a behavioral state such as the bodily posture of our rochana with its seven features, which presumably we just went through, that is conducive to mental absorption when one checks one mind, one's mind at the door. If it turns out that one's mind is being swayed by a motivation that is non-virtuous, such as attachment or aversion, then it will be difficult to have a good meditation. So for the time being, one needs to develop a neutral mind, which is neither virtuous nor non-virtuous, but is like a piece of stainless white cloth. A neutral mind can be developed through counting the breath in the following way, and they describe how to count the breaths. Skipping that, there's also the practice of clearing the stale air in nine rounds, and they go through how to do that, which uh, Tibetans are very fond of presenting. Usually, uh, Nyingmas are, are very big on this. Uh, I wouldn't have expected this from a, a bunch of, a group of, I shouldn't say a bunch, group of Galupa Geshe's. But, um, let's see. And then there's some summaries of this from various sources, including uh, a Tantra, the Vajra Garland, which is the explanatory Tantra for the Gui Samaja Tantra. Tantras come in types. There's the root Tantra, the extensive Tantra, the explanatory Tantra, and there's probably some others, but anyway. Uh, Kamala Shila's Bhavana Krama, and then there's the Kala Chakra Tantra that gives slightly different versions. So, that's the posture, objects of calm abiding meditation. So, um, in general, anything can be used as a meditation object. Uh, thus, any suitable object one is inclined to is acceptable. If one takes as a meditation object the form of a deity, for example, then the body of the chosen, this was interesting, right? How big and so forth is the body. Um, then the body of the chosen deity is visualized as being one arm span in front of oneself, about the size of a thumb tip. <laughs> That's pretty small. Uh, very dense, emanating light, radiant, and at the level of one's forehead or heart or navel in accordance with the meditator's inclination or comfort. Okay. When one is able to observe that form, clearly visualizing it as very small makes it easier for the mind to gather inward and tone down. It is taught that meditating on it as very dense 
can help the mind become less scattered and prevent excitation. While meditating on his emanating light can help prevent laxity. Since it's difficult to have a clear meditation object initially, if just the rough part of the basic meditation object, such as the head, hands, or so on, appear to the mind, then one must hold that with mindfulness without losing it and use meta-awareness to check that mindfulness does not lose that object. So whatever amount, so when you guys, guys get to visualization practice, just start with whatever you can can bring up in your vision. And later on, they explain, don't spend a lot of time trying to fill in the rest of it initially. Just get some part of it really clear, and then the rest of it will come, which is different than uh, is often presented as there's alternative ways. And one of those alternatives is to start with a part of the visualization and then build the whole thing. But I sort of agree with their version of like, just start with as much as what as arises easily and get that really clear and and uh, vibrant. In the above manner, if one practices by engaging in many short sessions and maintains continuity of the meditation object, said that the object will become clearer and clearer. It's also said that holding it firmly prevents laxity, not being distracted prevents excitation. Practicing in many sessions allows concentration to arise and keeping the sessions short inclines one to engage in meditation again and again. And there's this famous scheme called uh, of meditating for what's called an anga, A-N-G-A, which is a 24 minute period. And there's uh, apparently 60 of those in an hour since there's 24, 60 minute periods, I'm sorry, in a day. <laughs> Uh, there's 60, 24 minutes periods in a day. And it has something to do with also the the cycle of the breaths in the day, which are 21,600 breaths per day. And something about like in 24 minutes, they, I don't know, you breathe a lot. <laughs> uh, let's see. One must meditate without altering the basic meditation object until calm abiding is established because changing the meditation object becomes an obstacle to establishing calm abiding. So if that's what you're interested in is cultivating shamatha, then the tendency to do a lot of different things in your session, like loving kindness or uh, lots of chanting or contemplating impermanence or something should be reduced and you should just do meditation on the breath. Uh, but if that's not your objective, then do what, you know, suits your objective, supports your objective. Some quotes. And let's see. Uh, skipping the quotes on the next page, 399. Here we should unpack. <laughs> it's funny to use the common English word phrase, the specification single. Initially, one must establish calm abiding by focusing on a single object. Later, however, it's suitable to focus on many. As Kamala Sheila says, when attention has been at mastered, one focuses more broadly in terms of categories such as the aggregates, the elements, and so on. Thus, various types of meditation objects are spoken of in the Samdhinirmochana Sutra, and so on, in terms of different meditation, meditative objects for yogis, such as the 18 aspects of emptiness. 
And you might wonder, are those objects of uh, shamatha or vipassana? And uh, actually, the aggregates and the elements or so on are actually objects for, can be objects for both. The, um, you know, when one approaches the object in a different way, uh, um, in a non-discursive way versus a discursive analytical way. The criterion of the mind having first obtained or found the meditation object that one is focusing on can be understood as follows. Suppose one takes the body of a deity as the object initially visualized the head, etc. After that, one focuses on the whole body in general. If some coarse image of the limbs, perhaps just half, can appear in one's mind, then even if what is appearing lacks radiant clarity, one should be content with simply that much and focus the mind on it. This is what I mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, but this term of having obtained or found the meditation object is something that we don't really talk about much, uh, but I think, and beginners don't really have an appreciation for, but I think uh, when I explain it in this way, if, if not before, you will recognize that it actually takes some time to, in your meditation practice, identify the breath as your object. And sort of like, uh, find like yourself out of the confusion of your thoughts. And like the posture, and what am I supposed to be doing, and what time it is, and who's that, and what are they doing, and and then it's like, okay, I'm following my breath, and where am I following my breath? Is it out the nose? It is out, and you know, all of these thoughts about like, what am I doing? And then like gradually the feeling of, or you know, in our case, the feeling of the breath emerges as, oh, that's what's supposed to be happening. Just like feeling going out on the breath. Anyway. Okay, skipping the rest of that. The nature of calm abiding definition is concentration. So on page 400, arisen for meditative cultivation method being conjoined with a special pliancy. <laughs> it's a special glue, special uh, substance engages its object exactly as desired. The famous quote, and um, I'll skip that, to explain the term calm abiding when the outward wandering of the mind has been calmed and it abides single-pointedly on the inner object of meditation that is called calm abiding. The identification and analysis of pliancy is explained at length below. Interesting in a way that they call it inner object, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I tried to refer to that earlier with the whole thing of uh, the uh, psychosomatic body, but basically inner in the sense that it's a mental object as opposed to the actual specifically characterized phenomenon. It's the GCP, as you called it earlier. The eight mental applications and the antidotes to the five faults. So hopefully you're, we're all familiar with this scheme at this point. They presented in great length, so I'll skip the initial uh, presentation. Just actually just go through it real quickly. Laziness is the first of the five faults. And forgetting the instructions is the second. 
laxity and excitation taken as one are the third and uh, Trungpa Rinpoche is unique in presenting those as separate so he comes up with six obstacles um, or faults and not applying the antidotes when those are present is the fourth and applying the antidotes when you don't need to is the fifth and on the next page the eight application applica what they call applications we call antidotes that are the antidotes countering those are there's four for laziness and then there's one each for the remaining four the four for laziness are not being lazy <laughs> diligence <laughs> um then there's the cause for diligence which is aspiration which is like wanting to to do something and then there's a the cause of that which is faith thinking that it's good to do that thing in this case meditation but it could be anything and then the result of the diligence that arises from the faith which gave birth to the aspiration which gave birth to the diligence and the result of that is pliancy is your capability in doing and let's see the other four antidotes the next paragraph skipping the quote to the other four faults are mindfulness which counteracts forgetting the meditated forgetting the instructions or the object uh, meta-awareness which recognizes their their way of presenting it is interesting meta-awareness recognizes laxity or excitation and thereby is the antidote to them and there's there's some sense that just recognizing them uh, pre prevents them from continuing however there's also the sense that the next antidote which is uh, the intention to counter them or what we generally see is uh, applying the antidotes um, actually then counteracts laxity and excitation and applying the antidotes means applying mindfulness and, and meta-awareness and then meditative equanimity uh, is the antidote to applying the antidotes when you don't need to when your mind is fully calm and stable you don't need to continue with basically with the meta-awareness and we'll get to that that comes so that's sort of one of the most interesting parts of this is to what extent is there still subtle discursive meta-awareness and meta-awareness is subtle discursiveness cynthia i just um I, I remember when i first was learning these and was you know early on in my uh attempts to meditate and i remember finding that i guess it was probably number two and three in this context as totally frustrating because excuse to me, me a second just, i'm going to just close the window while you're saying that please continue sure it was like to me it was sort of like a catch-22 it's like saying you know it, it it didn't really give anything specific to be an antidote it's more like just saying you know don't do don't that. have that fault <laughs> yeah and i always like i would be like pounding my head going like you know this is just a, a silly you know circular kind of yeah that's good yeah it's kind of funny that they choose all these words to say it and it's just basically saying don't do it you know yeah yeah forgetting the instructions is the fault and the antidote is applying the instructions 
but how, how do but, I get right, myself I to apply like, You know, if, if you can't actually do it, if you're not doing it, then the how comes up. But it's it's just sort of something that obviously you have to live with and eventually it, it arises in some way. But these are funny in the, that they seem to be such a nice structured thing, but there's like these huge gaps of there really isn't anything you can do. Well, I think and we'll get there. It's uh, the scheme of the six powers for me is what makes it work so that the, the first two of the six powers are learning and contemplating the instructions and that's what gives us gives you the capability of generating the four antidotes to the first fault of laziness and then the second power is mindfulness which gives you the ability to apply the instructions and overcome the fault of not having applied the instructions and then the third of the uh, the fourth of the six is meta awareness which gives you the capability of quelling laxity and excitation and then exertion gives you the ability to fully uproot laxity and excitation and then equanimity gives you the ability to not fuss <laughs> don't, it's not broken don't fix it um so let's see if we can find that section hmm Okay, so in the bottom paragraph on uh, 401, since not applying an antidote is a fault when either laxity or excitation arises as the antidote to this, to this one must rely on, a, on adjusting an adjusting attitude that consists in applying the antidote. For example, one thinks that an enemy might be coming and receives a message confirming that, confirming that it then one immediately prepares to fight. Likewise, when meta-awareness recognizes that laxity or excitation is arising, one does not ignore it and let it be. Instead, one applies the adjusting attitude that is the antidote. Still, still has the sort of lack of clarity that Cynthia was talking about. Um, okay, and the different stages of recognizing either before it occurs, as it occurs, it being the laxity and excitation, or um, sort of after it has arisen. And let's see. Skipping the next paragraph. The concentration to be attained must have two qualities, vibrance of clarity and a single pointed abiding on the meditation object. Abiding single point in the meditation object requires both a method to prevent distraction and an understanding of whether distraction is occurring. For the first, we rely on mindfulness, and for the second, meta-awareness. Um, once meta-awareness is identified, laxity and excitation, mindfulness holds the basic meditation object without interruption, an indication that mindfulness is the basic instruction. And then meta-awareness notices when your mindfulness isn't working. And by noticing that, it immediately uh, reawakens the, the sort of instruction or intention or the program to be mindful. And then mindfulness resumes. Meta-awareness of this kind um, is needed occasionally, not all the time. 
What is needed constantly is mindfulness. Mindfulness joins the mind to the object. Once the meditation object is visualized, mindfulness produces a strong way of holding it such that without forgetting the object, the mind holds it without distraction. And without analyzing any new object whatsoever, the mind remains serenely placed exactly on the meditation object previously visualized. They keep talking about a visual object, the deity, presumably. Uh, let's see. Definition of mindfulness, 403, is a mental factor. So it was in our list of 51 mental factors we went through earlier, focusing on an object to which there has been previous familiarization. So it's a, it's a, in terms of the type of cognition, is it a prime cognition? Is it a first cognition? Or is it a subsequent cognition? It's a subsequent cognition of the same object, constantly coming back over and over again to the same object. It has three distinguishing qualities. The distinguishing quality of its object as a familiar thing. Familiarity, the distinguishing quality of the aspect. It focuses on that object without forgetting it. So it has familiarity. It has not forgetting or strength. And then it has uh, the quality of its function. It prevents the mind from being distracted from the object and serves as the basis for the mind to remain continuously on that object. So we place it firmly. Uh, we don't forget it. And we remember to stay on it. Is what mindfulness has those three functions. How mindfulness functions to keep the mind from wandering has already been explained in a different section of this book. The Bodhicharya explains that it, the cause of meta-awareness is mindfulness that does not forget the mind's objects. So when mindfulness stands guard at the gate of the mind, then meta-awareness will come naturally. And even if it leaves, it will return as your mindfulness in conjunction with mindfulness. So it has a sort of uh, uh, um, complementary relationship mindfulness and meta-awareness when there's when there's mindfulness then there's meta-awareness and the meta-awareness notices when the mindfulness is waning and gives rise to sort of strengthens the mindfulness which then strengthens the meta-awareness and so forth when mindfulness let's see i'll skip that after the quote the definition of meta-awareness is an intelligence type mental factor that monitors again and again which activities that should or should not be done are being engaged in through one's own body, speech, and mind. So it has this broad application to our whole being, the three doors of activity, body, speech, and mind. And this, this it has a judgmental sense, in, and this is the traditional version, it's not a non-judgmental awareness of the present moment as is famous uh, but it has this sense of what should or should not be done it very much has a value judgment going on there the function of meta-awareness is to monitor whether one's body speech mind engaging not engaging what one should or not be done the next paragraph uh, skipping that 
Let's go to the next page, 404. The effect of meta-awareness is that one's body, speech, and mind become peaceful, for they no longer go in the wrong direction. Under the power of mental afflictions, the benefits of relying on mindfulness and meta-awareness and the manner of relying on them can be understood from the slightly longer explanation given earlier in part six. Laxity and excitation, extensive presentation. Just one, can I ask one question? Yes, yeah. sure. When they referenced back to the last section, which we did before, and there, there had been this thing of, we're talking about mindfulness and meta-awareness back and forth, and then somewhere along the way, they introduced the third factor and said, that's really fundamental to both of them. So they don't bring that up here again. It's another one of those where that's out of the picture again, right? It's odd, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah it is odd. And then there was also like a chicken or egg thing, like which, which comes first. And uh, I guess it's this sense that you control you you cultivate mindfulness and then awareness in a somewhat contrived fashion initially where you like uh, intentionally bring it about and then when it becomes a natural inclination then it develops the heedfulness the third factor but, okay because what i thought i remembered is that in some ways they were saying the heedfulness was the one that came what, first but, chicken or egg i don't but, know but. Uh, yeah, thank you. So I left that out, which is that, and then it acts as the initiation, initiator of mindfulness and awareness, because it creates this continuity between sessions of heedfulness. I see. So even though then, back in that chapter, it seemed like they were saying it came first, you're saying that you think it arises from... Well, they the presented two. it last, but then they said it comes first. Right. So, so what I'm trying to say is that there's like a sort of contrived version of mindfulness and awareness, and then as it becomes natural, then there's this heedfulness that then naturally gives rise to the... Yeah, I hear that. So you're, but, but you're still saying then that heedfulness is a byproduct that then becomes a first mover, I guess. It's not first mover, but it becomes... Yeah, uh, well, it's all circular. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely another one of those circular ones. Yeah. Laxity is a mental factor that's either virtuous or neutral without defilement when the mind maintain stability but has lost the vibrancy of clarity and which arises due to heaviness owing to heaviness of body and mind from dullness sleepiness and so on uh, let's see skipping the quote after having just uh, yawning as like part of the effect by the way <laughs> after having stopped the scattering of the mind, if there's a lack of clarity even while abiding single-pointedly on the object, it's like having fallen asleep on one's cushion even while sitting upright. It's interesting they mentioned that, that uh, interesting ability that we all, I'm sure, have developed or experienced at one time or another. If the mind dwells in such a believing, it's come under the way of dullness and it causes laxity. So dullness causes laxity. There's this cause-effect scheme that they're building in there. There's a difference between these two, dullness and laxity. Dullness is associated with delusion and is either non-virtuous or neutral with defilements. It has the function of accompanying all mental afflictions. All mental afflictions have a dullness and secondary afflictions. It makes the body and mind unserviceable. So, it, like when uh, people are being uh, 
neurotic, it, it has this quality of dulling the capability of changing the course of your behavior. It makes the body and mind unserviceable. It like makes it harder to change your, your karmic momentum. Laxity is a mental factor that does not apprehend the meditation object clearly or firmly because the mind loosens its hold on the object when dull and sleepy. Laxity is the effect of dullness and dullness is the cause of laxity. And he goes on quoting a couple of sources, the usual. Skipping that, the next paragraph, laxity may be gross or subtle and gross laxity, although the mind stays on the basis of uh, the on on the basic object of meditation either there's no lucidity at all or the meditation object is very unclear as if a fog has settled in the mind both lucidity and vibrancy are absent at such a time in the case of subtle laxity although clarity lucidity and stability are present the clarity lacks vibrancy due to which the mind becomes stupefied I think we all know that experience where you're like sort of aware of the breath, but your mind is just mushy, dull. Laxity may also be characterized in subtle gross and medium, three grades. Gross is when, while mindfulness apprehends the object, stability is present, but lucidity and vibrancy are absent. So lucidity is clarity and vibrance is intensity our absence. Medium laxity is when stability and lucidity are present, but vibrancy is absent. So he's creating th uh, three f levels of laxity based on correlating them with these three qualities of uh, shamatha. And subtle laxity is when stability and lucidity are present, but there's a slight loss of vibrancy. Instead of it being absent, it's, there's some vibrancy, but it's uh, not not as much as should be, which is said to be the main obstacle to producing flawless meditation. Lack of vibrancy refers to a mind that while having stability has come under this way of laxity because of excessive loosening. Not too tight, not too loose. If stability is firm on that occasion, it's said to be a cause of subtle laxity. The stability is a cause of subtle laxity. That's interesting. A mind that possesses the vibrancy of clarity is one that abides brightly alert on the object. A mind that lacks the, the vibrancy of clarity, even though it seems to be focused alertly on the object, is said to be sluggish. Clarity here is not the clarity of the object, rather refers to the clarity of the subject in one's mind. To prevent the arising of subtle laxity, one must hold the meditation object firmly. When the hold is loosened, a more relaxed mind arises and subtle laxity returns. Subtle laxity and flawless concentration are similar in having both lucidity and clarity because the only difference between them is in terms of whether a slight degree of vibrancy of focusing is missing. It is said to be difficult to distinguish between these two states. Interesting discussion of laxity and similarly excitation has a similar subtlety. Second impediment involves the mind scattering towards the object of desire called excitation. 
For example, when there's attachment to food, mental scattering, that direction occurs after having thought about eating some food. This is a case of both scattering and excitation. Excitation belongs to the class of attachment. So mental scattering owing to other mental afflictions. Um, let's see. And scattering toward a virtuous object are instances of scattering, but not of excitation. <laughs> Therefore, although excitation is necessarily an instance of scattering, not all scattering is excitation. <laughs> um, well, let's see. Secondly, similarly, there's a difference between excitation and distraction. Excitation is scattering toward an attractive object and is including only within attachment. Distraction, on the other hand, involves scattering toward a variety of objects and may belong to any of the three poisons. As for the distinction between scattering and distraction, scattering makes the mind wander freely and widely, and it may be virtuous, non-virtuous, or neutral. Distraction within the class of secondary mental afflictions is only non-virtuous. So we have this odd triumvirate of scattering, excitation, and distraction. And for an extra 10 points, somebody could map these out for us. <laughs> excitation must maybe gross or subtle. Gross excitation is scattering that involves uh, having lost the basic ob object of meditation. So three levels of excitation, or two for starters. Sorry, two. Subtle excitation is scattering that does not involve losing the object. So there's excitation can be, uh, uh, has scattering with or without the object. For example, just as water flows under the ice, although the object of meditation is not lost and is still held by the mind. It's a nice analogy of water flowing under the ice. One part of the mind has the mental factor of distraction to which the attractive aspect of an external object is just about to appear. And for the time being, that distraction does not cause the mind to fluctuate outward away from the meditative focus, but it does indirectly induce fluctuations. The object of excitation is something attractive or pleasant as for its aspect since it makes the mind disquiet and scattered outward, it belongs to the class of attachment. Thus, it engages its object by way of craving. Its function is to hinder the mind from abiding on the meditative object. When the mind is focused outwardly on the meditative object, excitation, being attached to forms and so on, draws the mind helplessly towards those things and causes distraction. And a supporting quote. Causes and eliminations. As for the causes that give rise to the two impediments, the concentration. So I don't know. That was sort of interesting presentation. These lacks and excitation and these three different like qualities and how they come together. Someday it would be good to schedule these out. Anyway, causes and eliminations. As for the causes that give rise to these two impediments, the song goes. Yogachara, no, uh, levels of yoga deeds, Yogachara Bhumi, no, Shravaka Bhumi, something like that. Levels of yogic deeds. 
Uh, yoga boomy, boomy something. Anyway, what are the signs of laxity? Not guarding the doors of the senses, not eating in moderation, not making an effort to practice rather than sleeping during the early and later parts of the night. Abiding without meta-awareness, deluded behavior, oversleeping, not knowing the proper method, having excessively slack aspiration, diligence, intention, and analysis, giving only partial attention to calm abiding without occasionally, sorry, without accustoming yourself to it and fully mastering, letting your mind abide as if in darkness, not delighting in focusing on the object of meditation. How should one understand signs? of laxity to mean the causes here one should understand signs of laxity should mean the causes of laxity what are the signs in addition to the four listed above for the signs of laxity not guarding the doors and so on there are desirous behavior having a disquieting manner lacking a sense of disenchantment not knowing the proper method and as before having excessively tight aspiration and so on not accustoming yourself to diligence and so on and so on and so forth. Uh, let's see on page 408, the next paragraph, the way to eliminate laxity, cut to the chase, is as follows. In general, excitation arises when the mind is too aroused and laxity when it's too deflated. Therefore, the mind enters into subtle laxity while practicing concentration, which should tighten one's focus on meditation. If that approach does not remove the subtle laxity, then one should think about things that make the mind joyful, such as the good qualities of shamatha, as a way to uplift the mind and then engage in meditation again. That's often the most one of the most common recommendations. I wonder if any of us ever do that, like sort of pause in our meditation when we're like distracted and think. What are the what are the good qualities of being able to, to practice shamatha? Why am I doing this? <laughs> what am I trying to experience? Um, since it is a fault of holding too tightly, where the hell am I? Uh, sorry, the wrong paragraph. If that approach doesn't remove it, then one should think about things that make the mind joyful, such as contemplating the good qualities as a way to uplift the mind and engage in meditation again. If that doesn't work, then one should end the session and go out to a bar and uh, to a spacious place or to a place that is brightly illuminated with a lot of rectangular screens, preferably. And or walk in the hills and so on to look at distant views and breathe in fresh pure air or wash one's face in cold water and uh, such like or slap oneself on the face the way to eliminate excitation is if the mind is distracted even while continuously not losing the object this is subtle since it is the fault of holding too tightly one must loosen the hold a little if that doesn't work then it's medium excitation. In that case, first one sets the meditation object aside. Then since excitation arises from a tightened and aroused mind, one must think about impermanence, suffering, and so on as a way to lower the state of mind. 
shift to thinking about the four reminders, things like that. And engage in the practice after the mind has been slackened or has slackened. If even that doesn't stop the distraction, then it's gross. In that case, one must rely on the instructions on the outflow and inflow of the breath, identified as a way to firmly control excitation. When exhaling, think of the breath. The first breath is out-breath, and when inhaling, think of it as in-breath. Uh, when one counts using that method, so going to counting breaths, if even that doesn't stop it, then it's gross. Excitation one should include the session for the time being in rest and then take up the practice later on. <laughs> Go take a nap, come back to it. Uh, when the mind has been uplifted and its way of holding tightened through developing vibrant clarity, it's free from the fault of laxity, but the danger of excitation increases. Conversely, when the mind has been considerably slackened and deflated, scattering excitation is reduced to that extent, but the danger of laxity increases. Now, when an undistracted mind's way of holding that has a well-balanced alertness, the undistractedness prevents the excitation and the alertness prevents the laxity. And that's what we generally say, is that mindfulness present, uh, reduces excitation and awareness reduces laxity. Uh, this is a very important point. Therefore, it's said that one must become superbly masterful in how to maintain balance by thinking. When the mind is tightened this much, excitation arises. So I'll relax it a little. And by thinking, when it's loosened this much, it becomes lax. So I'll tighten it. Not, not too tight, not too loose. One should master maintaining balance in this way. Each, in this way, each time clarity arises, guard against excitation, cultivate stability. Each time stability arises, guard against laxity and develop clarity. The three expressions, arousing the mind, tightening, and firming, are synonymous in the three expressions, deflating the mind, loosening, and slackening are synonymous. Thus, one must recognize laxity and excitation and know how to rely on their antidotes. However, if one relies too much on meta-awareness when laxity and excitation are not actually arising, then there's the danger of causing the basic object of meditation to dissipate when the faults of laxity and excitation are absent. The main method is to remain supreme, serene. Supreme. This applies not only to stabilizing meditation, but also to analytical meditation. Accordingly, one should practice while being free of both laxity and excitation. Then they go through the nine stages of meditation and uh, a fairly standard presentation of the nine stages. Did anyone find anything unusual or particularly interesting? Okay. Um, let's see, in the bottom of 441, there seems to be uh, a sort of summary. The progression of these stages of mental stabilization may be illustrated as follows. At first, one's enemies are powerful. Then after a while, some of their power declines. And finally, they lose all their power. In a similar way, the power of laxity and excitation gradually declines. Among the six powers, the seventh and eighth mental stabilizations are accomplished through the power of diligence. That's what happened. I skipped the powers they bring into uh, 
this discussion to different powers. So uh, let's see, back on 409, the last paragraph among these, the first is mental placement. The last sentence says, this first stabilization accomplished to the first of the six powers of learning the instruction from others. The next page, the second is continuous placement. The last sentence is attained to the power of reflection. The third is patched placement. The last sentence, uh, no, where is it? Sorry, the next one is close placement. And at the <clears throat> end of that paragraph, it says both the third and fourth mental stabilizations are accomplished through the power of mindfulness. And from that point on, like a person who's grown up said that mindfulness has fully matured so that the, or that the power of mindfulness is complete. The fifth is taming independence on powerful meta-awareness. One comes to know by experience the good qualities of, mind, of concentration and the mind is uplifted with joy. Skipping to the next paragraph, the sixth is pacification towards the end of that. Among the powers, both the fifth and sixth are accomplished through the power of meta-awareness. From this point on, the power of meta-awareness is said to be complete. The presence or absence of the dangers of subtle accident and excitation is what distinguishes the fifth and the sixth stage. So the fifth stage, we eliminate the gross of those both. And the sixth stage, we work on the subtle. The seventh is complete pacification. And uh, interest, this one has to do with overcoming attachment, desire, mental discomfort, dullness, sleepiness. And towards the end of the seventh, the paragraph on the seventh, they say, um, during the fifth and sixth, there's a fear of being impeded by laxity and excitation. However, during this seventh stage, although they may arise, they can be stopped by diligence. Thus, it's said that laxity and excitation cannot create any significant hindrance. The eighth is single-pointed attention. And uh, in the next paragraph, which ends, which goes on to page one, 412, the last sentence and the first on 412 says the seventh and eighth mental stabilizations are accomplished through the power of diligence the ninth is balanced placement and that occurs in the middle the ninth stage is said to be accomplished through the power of complete familiarity at the stage there's not only uh, not only is there freedom from lax and excitation but there's also an inability to sustain continuity without needing to make any effort using sorry, an ability, without needing to use diligence, a kind of independence is attained in one's mind, and one, and the mind can stay in the object of meditation for as long or as short as it's placed there. For more on these, you can read other sources. They go through the four types of attention that occur in this progression. And there's a long quote that brings them all together from the Shravaka Bhumi. Then we have the famous chart of Shamatha with the monk, uh, well, the monkey, the elephant, and there's a monk, and then there's, uh, gradually there's also a rabbit that appears, 
and then there's a very long explanation of the graphic, which is helpful. And then 416, how calm a body is attained through meditation. And this is a long presentation of pliancy and uh, the different types of pliancy. There's physical and mental pliancy. And uh, there's pliancy and there's bliss. And uh, <clears throat> so let's see on 417, this first para full paragraph. So how is pliancy attained? The compendium says, what is pliancy? It is a serviceability of body and mind that has the function of dispelling hindrance, all hindrances, since it interrupts the continuum of bodily and mental dysfunction. Here, that phrase refers to the unfitness of one's body and mind to be employed in accomplishing virtuous deeds at will. Bodily and mental pliancy. The antidote to this makes the body and mind highly suitable to be employed in virtue by removing bodily and mental dysfunction. There are two types, bodily pliancy, mental pliancy. Bodily pliancy is gained through the power of concentration. It's posited as the suitability of the body to be employed in virtuous activities as desired. Skipping the rest of that. Uh, actually, wait, having removed the faults of body serviceability makes the body light like cotton. Mental pliancy is posited as the serviceability of the mind gained through the power of concentrating that having removed mental dysfunction allows the mind to focus on the meditative object without impediment. Uh, then there's a little discussion of whether there are mental factors or not, which is not that important. And then on the next page, 418. Um, in the middle of the first full paragraph, then through the force of the arising appliancy, that is mental serviceability, the body is pervaded by an energy wind, lungta. That is the cause of bodily pliancy. When this occurs, it eliminates bodily dysfunction, give rise to pliancy, and having saturated the entire body, the meditator seems to be filled with the force of this serviceable, serviceable rather energy wind. Owing to that pliancy, having arisen energy winds, included among the great elements that are conducive to the arising of body pliancy, course through the body. When they flow, bodily dysfunction within the afflictive class, which hinders delight in eliminating afflictions, abandon its remedy, bodily pliancy saturates the body, and the meditator seems to be filled with that energy. Having attained bodily pliancy, there arises a great experience of bliss in the body through the force of the energy wind. This is called the bliss of bodily pliancy. On the basis of having achieved this bliss and bodily pliancy, there also arises an exceptional experience of bliss and joy in the mind. This is called the bliss of mental pliancy. Among these two types of mental pliancy, mental pliancy arises first, which is not how they just described it. And among these two types of bliss, the bliss of bodily pliancy arises first. So first you have the bodily bliss, which arises from the bodily pliancy. So it seems to be contradictory. Am I missing something? This one must distinguish between the bodily and mental pliancy on the one hand and the bliss of bodily mental pliancy on the other. When bodily pliancy initially arises, a great experience of bliss arises in the body through the force of the wind. Then on that basis, an exceptionally great experience of bliss and joy arise in the mind. After that, the power of the initial bliss of pliancy gradually subsides. 
but pliancy is not extinguished. Instead, when that grows pliancy, which greatly agitates the mind, all that bliss is very agitating, um, disappears, there arises a pliancy that is delicate like a shadow and conducive to unperturbed concentration. When excessive joy in the mind has subsided, the mind remains firmly on the meditation object and when attains, calm, abiding, which is free from the agitation caused by great joy. So even though there's nine stages of calm abiding, when calm abiding is not actually accomplished until these pliancies are accomplished, which indicates that there's really 10 stages. And the 10th is the accomplishment through the powers of the pliancies, bodily and mental. And um, a little complexity around uh, bodily and mental pliancy in terms of which arises first and the joy and the bliss and so forth. Then there's this interesting section on uh, calm abiding on the mind itself. And uh, maybe we'll start with that section next week and we'll end here since we're past time. And it's a, a sort of curious section to have in this text in this part of it, which at least I found and also a sort of curious way that they describe it. So comments, suggestions, questions, announcements, humorous stories, weather reports, anything? What's the weather supposed to be tomorrow? Rainy? Okay. Rainy. Yes, rainy. Okay. We do we do need some water. So. Okay, let's uh, dedicate. By this merit, may all attain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence in the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's mist and bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Great to see you and look forward to seeing you next week for uh, Vipassana. And then, uh, and then, by the way, we take uh, what turns out to be like a two-week break. I'm away June 26th. I go away. So June 27th, I'm away that week. And then the following week is... Fourth of July. Fourth of July. Sorry. You're pretty excited about that, huh? Fourth <laughs> of July. So then we we have a two week break. Wow, that's gonna be that's gonna be weird. We're back on the eleventh. Back on the eleventh. Yeah. And how many sessions then from there? This is a good question. Let's see. Next week we do session. Eight, which is insight and mindfulness and then on the 11th we do how to be <laughs> session nine and uh, depending on when we want if we want to or not we can do a final review session on the uh, 18th of July and uh, you can submit your thoughts on whether we should do that session or skip it or not by ballot Mm-hmm. <laughs>
and then we break for the summer. And by the way, um, you don't really get the summer off because you're all required to consider doing a course that I'm going to do with Chris Wilcox on Ocean Sneak Preview. That I think we're doing. We got, I finally got the translation committee to print their translation of this text by Mipom on Shantong called The Lion's Roar of Shantong that I've like threatened to use in classes for a long time, right? I think it will probably ring some bells. And so that's like a little sneak peek for us of like the, the end uh, text of the various texts on uh, the understanding of reality that we'll go through having once we complete in the fall the tenets we'll go through all the tenets of the four schools and then we'll do chandra kirti's introduction emptiness and then we'll look at the tibetans versions of that sankapa uh, sakya and uh, and then mipam mm. but this is a short little text it's difficult and uh, but it's neat and rimshe was into it and had the translators work on it in the 1983 seminary. I happened to be there for that rare occasion. And uh, they've been hemming and like been uh, not willing to sort of finalize their translation of it for many, many years. And finally I asked and they, they were like, okay. And they printed it up and it's, it's a little booklet and I actually bought like 15 copies because the shipping from Canada, as we know, is ridiculous. So I think it's like $12, you know, so the shipping would be like more. And um, so uh, I can mail them out from here, hopefully see you guys. You know, maybe we'll do another uh, practice day or something between now and then or some point. But anyway, I hope you'll be interested in doing that on Tuesday, starting from July 25th. Yeah. So maybe maybe we should take a break on the 18th and have a, a week off. I don't know, we just had two weeks off, so we see. <laughs> anyway, nice to see you. Otherwise, have a good night. Take care. Be well.